Let's get going then and welcome a man who won everything he could as a player. 11 major titles in 13 years with Chelsea. He's a club legend. He remains their top scorer. And for the past year, he's managed the club he loves as well. As well as that, he's travelled. He's written books. He's experienced heartache and loss. He's been celebrated. He's been criticised. He's a husband. He's a father. Yet through it all, without high performance, nothing would have been the same for him. So welcome to the podcast, Frank Lampard. Frank, nice to have you with us. Thank you. Good to be here. So... What is high performance? Ooh, um, hard work. Uh, I think anything that you, in anything you do in life, I was fortunate enough to be brought up in um, pretty comfortable circumstances looking back, and, um, but given a, a huge work ethic uh, and probably a message that anything I wanted to do or achieve in life started with hard work. And I think that rings true in everything I've done and I see it around me in, in how I work. Um, on top of that, I would say, well, of course, talent, which is, is always pretty um, subjective. Objective, I got, I got called a, a not very talented, well, a, a, a player that made the most of my talents, which is like a backhanded compliment if yeah. ever you hear one, but I get that too, even when I sort of would look at myself. Um, and then I think that the last one, which is, for me, which I think was a big factor, is intelligence. And I don't mean to say I'm intelligent, that would just sound stupid to say that way, but I, I mean in terms of how you approach uh, your goals and how you want to get to them. Um, for instance, in football, I would say it's how you train smart, how you think smart, how you prioritise what the things you need to do to get to as mm. high up as you can be. And I think that's certainly something I feel very mirrored in my playing career to my management career and how I see it. Well, let's start there then. I'm really interested to know where that intelligence came from because there'll be people listening to this podcast mm. who want to be successful. They want to make the most of their talents. Mm. They want to live their dreams and achieve their ambitions. Mm. And to do that, they need the intelligence to know what to do. Mm. Where did that come from for you? Um, I, I think when I go back to the beginning and, uh, and I talked about the comfortable circumstances, I, I think I was fortunate in terms of when my career went because I had a, a father who was a f football player. Uh, so as I grew up, he was a coach at that point. Um, and then a mother who was incredibly supportive in, her, in how she... Uh, brought me up and almost gave me the, the, the nicer touches and my dad gave me the, the harder touches. But I think I, my dad, when it came to football, was very open to making me aware of what my shortcomings were at the time. Uh, pace, body shape, um, left foot, head in, whatever. And um, so I feel like as I, as I grew up, I, I, had, I was always listening to that and, and I carried that through my career, even when I was playing probably at the top of my game or as, much, as close to the top as I got, I still had a lot of uh, complexes is the wrong word, but I was aware of what I felt were deficiencies and I just attacked them in the only way I could, which was how I trained, how I thought about them. Um, and so that's when I say intelligence again, I don't mean it as in uh, you know, getting top marks or anything, it's just how I tried to approach things because I, I felt like I was always open to to self-criticism and then, okay, how do I not just look at what I'm not good at, but how do I make it better? So can I ask you about your mum and dad then? Because mm. reading about your background, it seems like a bit of a yin and yang mm. of your parents. Your dad was very driven and focused in his own career and he passed on those attributes to you and yet your mum does seem to have been more nurturing and mm. developed the softer side of you. So... One of the things that I read, a quote that you'd said, the piece of advice your mum had passed on was you needed to learn to be kinder to yourself. Mm. I, yeah. I mean, the yin and yang is perfect because my dad came from a very... We had a, he had a tough upbringing, much tougher than mine. He lost his father when he was very young um, and uh, had to fight to, get, uh, to become a professional footballer. Um, and he kind of carried that demeanour, very old school, very, very strong, would tell you, you know, I, m I remember driving home from Sunday morning games, and I've said this before, but uh, he would be sort of like shouting at me in the car. Looking back, I was like, I don't understand how you can be shouting at me when I was like 12, 13 years of age. And then I'd get home and I would be crying, and my mum would be the one that would bring me, I don't know, my, my lunch or a cake or something. <laughs> That's probably why I was a chubby kid, but she would be the, the, the one that would settle me down. And... Um, so I think I'd like to think that I took both of those sort of sides of it in my in my professional career. Um, got driven by my dad in that tough way, but had my mum giving me those sort of moments. And I remember as I got older, my mum would always be the one because I'm quite reactive. If you know, if I if I take criticism when I was playing, I'd want to say something back. I'm a bit like that in life. And my mum was always the one to say to me, 
just rise above it. I remember saying that all the time, rise above, rise above. And when I was younger, I couldn't quite understand it as much as I probably think about it now. And I still don't always rise above it. Don't get me wrong, I'm reactive still. But when you have those moments, sometimes you think about mum's words and probably my dad's actions were probably what kind of uh, moulded me in a, in a footballing sense, for sure, but in a life way as well. Yeah. One of the things that we, we talk about a lot on this podcast is resilience and giving your children resilience to deal with the challenges that, that are in front of them. At the time, it sounds like it was quite difficult and painful to be shouted at by your dad and mm. to be given some home truths. Do you think on reflection, that was him instilling the resilience in you? So when you got to the challenges of professional football, you were able to draw on the experiences of sitting in the back of that car as a 12-year-old and, and cope with what came your way? I think he would claim that, that was the plan. Do you not think so, though? <laughs> no, I, I actually think it was just him. Right. And um, if there was a nice fallout from it for me as I got older, it did probably make me a bit tougher. And I had some tougher experiences as I got on the footballing ladder at West Ham. But with, with my dad, I, I think he generally reacted how, how he saw fit at the time. He, I, th- I felt like, and I, and I look back, that he was not reliving his football career through me, but... He'd done it. He'd fought to be this, you know, West Ham's left back for 15, 20 years. Um, and he himself used to talk about his deficiencies that he'd had when he was young and he used to use running spikes and all these great old stories that your dad sort of tells you. Um, and I think he took me as a bit of a project um, as a son to try and see if he could make me into a professional footballer. And, and I felt that all the way up to my, my... I didn't really cut loose from that feeling with my dad until my mid-20s, really, of that oh, must-impress dad when it wow. comes to football. I used to remember looking up in the stands at, at West Ham or in my early Chelsea days and kind of think what he would have thought. And uh, I needed to really grow out of that, by that, by that point. So, I, yeah, I don't know how he planned it. I think it was just how he was. So what led you to make that, to, to cut those ties that you stopped trying to impress him? I think it was just my development. And, and I think, um, as I see it, I, I turned from being a bit of a boy to a man. Uh, I think it was a bit like... Uh, I, re- I relied on that because my dad was quite dominant of me in, in the footballing sense and actually in life, to be honest. Um, I became a little bit reliant on that. You know, I, it was like follow his word and his lead. And then when I moved across to Chelsea, started playing for England, started probably gaining some success, I kind of thought, actually, no, no. What, when I thought everything that dad said was right was when I was 12 and actually some things I don't agree with, some things I don't see the same as he sees them. Maybe that started to, you know, look at my mum's side then or different things in life. Yeah. And I actually started to get... My own, be my own person, really, and I probably um, moved moved away. And just, I don't want to make it sound like a big breakup. It's not, but um, in my professional life, I started to feel differently. Do you, do you know when you were getting criticism when you were breaking into the West Ham team, and there was that those sort of um, accusations of nepotism because mm. your uncle was the manager, and that, there's that famous scene, isn't there, where at a fans forum, Harry kind of defends your honour against a fan that's. Mm that's criticising you. Don't you think that you would have seen all that and been aware of all that at a really young age? Did your dad's criticism at an even younger age not help you in that situation? Because you think, well, I've seen all this before. I've, I've had it on a much more personal level from, from my dad, so I can deal with this. Or I'm just interested to know where the ability to cope with that came from because so many people cannot cope with external criticism. Yeah. It, it maybe did, Jay. I think it possibly did in that sense. Um, it felt very different at the time. Yeah. In fact, it made my dad my relationship with my dad slightly different at the time because it was the first time he kind of flipped and realised I was getting a lot of uh, stick pressure from outside and he became softer to it and, and, and defended me. My mum played a huge role at that point because I was 17, 18 and, you know, I was just sort of moving out of uh, home, I think got my own flat, but at times I would be really, really down about... Mm warming up and getting pelts from West Ham fans. I, I, you know, I, I'm much more um, reflective on it now and calmer. I wrote a book when I was much in my mid-twenties and um, I wanted to react and I wanted to put the story straight and all that stuff. I wish I'd never done it now because it was definitely something that shaped me. But, um, and that period at West Ham definitely helped me as I went through football and the, 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 the trials of playing for Chelsea and the good and the bad and the England, which is obviously brings bad when you don't make it through World mm. Cup quarterfinals and stuff like that. Those early days of West Ham days definitely shaped me. I, I'm, I'm thankful for them now and, uh, and I'm also thankful for the support I did get, but as I say, particularly from my mum at that point. But that book that you described, I mean, I think that you give some really quite powerful examples about of how visceral and vile some of the abuse you were getting mm. is and I think you recount some of those instances of, mm. 
Um, there was a guy in the director's box behind your mum and your auntie mm. that would make a point of abusing you for their benefit. Mm. And when I was reading that book, it, it, the, it shook me that you were almost an early pioneer of what a lot of people get now on social media, mm. the abuse there, but you were getting it before social media was a thing. Yeah. Do you think that that helps you now as a manager of this next generation that... that that you can empathise with them a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, it certainly does. I, I do empathise with them and I'll be very quick to, to speak on that level because when you've experienced something like that, it looks different, as you say, in the modern day. Um, but when you've experienced it, it, it all feels the same. And unfortunately now, every player will get it um, to what, uh, whatever period of your career it may be. Um, and when you're a young player, um, you can look bulletproof or give off the impression of being bulletproof, but nobody is. Nobody is um, when, when you're in a, uh, the, the eye that these players are under. Um, so, yeah, I'm very quick to try and support players on that. It's difficult. I'm, I'm very pleased that my career timed its run <laughs> early and I didn't hit the real heights of social media because if you see it, um, you have to deal with it and it can be very detrimental for sure. So... There's a, I mean, there's a lovely story that you tell about that period where there was a, you describe a young 14-year-old lad that used to abuse you on the yeah, bench and yeah. then you went into a bank and his mum told you she was a big West Ham fan and mm. then you met her outside the ground and it was the 14-year-old lad that yeah. abused you regularly. And yeah. there's a lovely bit where, where you speak about that phrase you said that your mum had taught you, that you rose above it. Mm. Like, it, it made me laugh when I read that you said mm. that you, you considered telling her that her son smoked and, yeah. <laughs> and getting him into trouble and he said yeah. but I remembered that I had to rise above it yeah I so did. so would you explain about that process of where you learned that emotional control mm. because you say you're reactive but you obviously weren't in every situation yeah no, that was classic of that period because I remember going in the bank all the time and the woman didn't really divulge much to me and then this one time she did and she said I'm going to bring my boys mad and West Ham I expected this you know young, sort of really nice kid coming in with a West Ham shirt on an old side his top or something. And it turned out to be this kid that sat just behind the dugout and absolutely ruined me. It had literally been the week before. He ruined me, swore at me, finger went up, everything. And uh, so it was like, uh, I suppose, you know, like the more you experience that thing, a lot of that stuff, I think, can feel worse when you hear it from a distance. I remember my sisters used to come to games and say things to me that they'd, they'd heard. And that really hurt me. And then maybe when you actually see it face up and then you realise the fact that this is just a 14-year-old kid and um, it's just a mum who works in a bank who's, a, who's been really nice all the time and this is the pantomime that is football, mm. you kind of actually manage to distinguish what's important and what's not. And I, I suppose those little experiences, and it's not just me, I wanna, don't want to sound like I'm sort of crying here too much about it because I think, as I say, in, not just football, in life, everyone has these little knocks that you must get over and they feel really painful to you at first and you go through it again and then you realise and then I started to play better I got my foot in the first team um, started to believe in myself a little bit more and those little digs uh, became just things that spurred me on um, I didn't really feel that until I left and went to Chelsea right. because that's when I felt like hang on I'm on a different path here I, I knew I needed to get away from West Ham because my time there was tainted I don't have nice memories of it and I'm not saying that as a a tribal dig at a fellow London club because now I'm a Chelsea man. I just don't have nice memories of it, but I still, that's not to say I don't realise how much it shaped me and how much the opportunity that I got given at the club. Yeah, that is the, is an that is the key thing, I think, mm. is that even if something's painful, it doesn't mean it isn't valuable. Yeah. And, you know, there's a phrase I often use, which is, it's never been harder to be ourselves these days because it's never been easier for other people to criticise right. us. In those days, it was a kid in the stands or an adult in the stands. Now it's all over social media. And I think that... That is the key message for a lot of people listening to this, is that at the time, things can feel really painful, but sometimes you've got to understand that to go through that painful stuff is almost, it's almost necessary, mm. you know? And that's exactly what your experience is, it feels like. Yeah, it's just how you, you react. And sometimes it's a long game. That, that's the tough thing sometimes, I think, because in those moments, you don't see the, the light at the end of the tunnel. All you see is that, you know, I'll, all I wanted to do was grow up and play for West Ham. I love mm. Tony Cotty, I love Frank McIverney. And that was my dream. And then when you get the dream and you're on the touchline and, you, and some fella who's much older than you and quite dangerous looking is shouting at you and swearing at you, you go, what, what is this dream about? So at that point, I yeah. could not see the, the light at the end of the tunnel. But, you know, day by day, bit of a better performance, maybe not so good, felt a bit stronger, people around me helping me, all these things, they, they absolutely came together. And not, not to say it certainly would have gone that way. I mean, I was very fortunate in different parts of my career of timing, of 
of things that happen. But I do, I'm a big believer in making your own luck. I'm a big yeah. believer if you train extra, if you try and hold your dignity in moments where you could easily lose it. And you know, I've lost mine at different times in my career. But if you try and do the right thing, you may get your little uh, things that go in your, in your favour. And, and I probably had them, you know, coming back to get the Chelsea job. My timing was impeccable. <laughs> no, transfer ban, year at Derby, and it all, the stars almost aligned. Yeah. And people would like to tell me that. But I don't believe in those things happening without reason or, or for what you put in to get there. We talk often on this podcast about 100% responsibility. And I think it can be a difficult mindset for some people, but it mm. basically is even things that are not your fault, there's no point not taking responsibility for them because then you can't control them. What, what are your thoughts on that 100% responsibility? I'm, I'm absolutely a massive fan of it because one thing I think I've seen in football um, from being a young man trying to make it from playing through now managing is blame and any kind of blame culture or it's not me, it's them, it's that. Mm. I hear it a lot. As By a, the way, even if it is them. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I, and I think that I... I think I'm, I'm lucky in a way, but I think part of the way I am is that I, 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 I never want to look at really... And maybe at times it's easy said, I blame the, the back four useless today, you know what I mean? I will blame, I'll blame the strikers because they didn't finish my... And really, uh, generally though, I always inside, always looking at myself. I was always my biggest critic, my own biggest critic, on the pitch and hopefully off the pitch. And of course, made loads of mistakes. Um, but you have to take responsibility. If you, if you want to get better, you have to take responsibility, no matter mm. what, for good or for bad, I suppose. And how important is 100% responsibility in the culture you're now trying to create as a manager? Yeah, it's, it's of utmost importance and it's a message that you really have to drill home because I think uh, it's very easy when you're a coach or a manager and you've been there and had your career and you know you made a million mistakes, but when you sit at the top of the tree or you know, in my office at, at Chelsea, not to think not to think like the 21-year-old who's making those mistakes you made and just think you're above it and I see it all and it's, you have to get on the, the level of these players and they all have different thoughts, they all have different reasons, something at home, on the training pitch, how they see things and so I can't think that my morals and my values just transmit to everybody and then everyone will be a great trainer like I was and make the most of my talent because I didn't. I, I made mistakes. Sometimes I went out when I shouldn't have done. So I have to be very open to that. So for the players to try and take responsibility is a daily chip away at trying to create something that feels that way and we're in that process at Chelsea I'm not going to lie we've not we've not um, uh, won that battle yet because it takes it definitely takes time particularly with a, with a younger squad which we have a lot of young players in there but one of the great stories that I like about your early career Frank was the fact that you speak about coming in and doing sprint sessions on days off or you'd often stay behind and 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 and, and do extra training so when we had Rio Ferdinand on the mm. podcast he spoke about how he he would see you doing it and he copied you because mm. he wanted to get better how do you cope with young players that are coming into your club though that don't have that desire that do have a different view in the world in mm. terms of think that talent is going to be enough to uh, to forge a successful career yeah, that, that's a good question. I, you can never assume... I, I've just spoken about my upbringing and I think I was drilled with it as a young man. Um, but you can never assume that another player has that young player. So you, all you have to do is try and show them why it will benefit them, explain it to them. You can't just say, you must go out and do 100 sprints and then expect them to get on with it and everything will be fine. You have to say, here's the reason why. You know, put the detail in it behind it to try and go individually through that group and explain to them what extras will do for them what that will then do for the, the team, what that will do for their home life and where their career might go and all these things and try and be... And that's communication. You can't lay down laws of you must all do extras and then just stand back and watch it from the other side of the pitch. You have to speak to the players, change it, ask why, what do they think about it and get close to them. So I try and do that. And the reality is if you don't get any uplift after a while with that and you've tried and tried and tried, then there might be time where you have to say, well, you're not going to reach the level. Because if you don't have that attitude, no matter what the talent is, and it's a real age-old argument that I'm really interested in is, is sort of nature and nurture and how, how much there's talent and can you just get by by just having pure talent. You know, I watched Neymar recently and I'm going, wow, this guy is an incredibly talented yep. player. Um, but he will have his own version of the hard work and what it takes behind mm -hmm. the scenes as well. Won't look like mine, won't look like everyone else's. Yep. He's an outrageously talented boy. But um, a lot of us don't have that outrageous talent. 
and a lot of us have to put in lots of different types of work around it. And if you're talking, asking me, yeah, I would try and push it. But if players aren't going to do that, I think it has to be done at the top of the game and then you would move on from that one. So how much, so to go back to that nature-nurture argument then, if we relate it mm. to you as a player and then talk, expand mm. it out, what would you say the percentage was? Ooh, I, I, I could wake up one day and tell you percentage and think differently the next because I, I like to read about these sort of things and, and just to look at people and experiences you have with sports people, athletes actually maybe in life and I, I think I can't give you that percentage I can't I know that I didn't have the, the talent of a Neymar I also know that I did have talents in terms of um, I could finish I, I think one of my biggest talents which I touched on earlier was being aware of the things I needed to do you know I was never the quickest so I knew I had to get going earlier I knew I had to read when I was on the blind side of a midfielder to make the run and the more I did it and the older I got I got better at doing that so I would probably say I'm quite heavy on the, the nurture, but I don't yeah. know exactly what the percentage is. But haven't we just talked about 100% responsibility? Mm. So what's the point in your mind of thinking, well, it's all about nature? Because if you consider that all my success is down to nature, not nurture or not down to me, then you're kind of given up control. Mm. And it's a difficult one because even if your players have not had the upbringing that you've had um, and maybe they're not born with the same talents that, you've, that you were born with, you still have to find a way to get them to buy into this 100% responsibility. Mm. You're not responsible for whether Mason Mount has a successful Chelsea career or not. Mason Mount yeah. is successful for that, and every other young player then, huh? Yeah, but, well, they are, of course, but then I, 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 so I disagree with you. My, my view on that now as a manager is that I am responsible. And the only way I think you can create an environment which looks like you're asking for everyone to be 100% responsible is by them seeing that from yourself. So I, I don't think it's a problem to show weakness. I don't think it's a problem to, for me to try and prepare a team for a week and work on a shape and then you come up and it doesn't work at the weekend to almost be a bit open with the players and, and say maybe a few individual moments or that. I don't, I don't mind that because the, I, you know, I did my pro licence last year and I like to read, I like to listen to coaches, even if, if it was a coach that had a completely different philosophy to mine, you know, long ball, bracket long, go on stats completely, or whatever, whatever way it might yeah. be. I can gain, and from, if I can gain one nugget from that argument or that idea, that means I'm developing, you know, and, I, need, and I, need, I know I need to develop. For a young coach to come in and go, no, no, I know the game of football, I know what it is, don't, don't worry, I don't need to listen to that view. And also, if my players don't produce, that's because they're not good enough. I'll need better players or something. That kind of lazy argument is never going to get you anywhere. Mm. It's one of my sort of things that I really try and, and do is to look at myself every day and go, what could I have done there? I can't blame the players for that performance. I can't. You know, and at moments, you'll sit down with reflection and, of course, you look at how the squad looks, but I must make myself 100% culpable for, for Mason Mount as well. Yeah. And would you admit that to them? After a game, would you? Would you? I, suppose ever, I just have. They're obviously going to listen to this. <laughs> well, they might do, yeah. Podcast. But would you ever stand up in the dressing room and say, "Lads, I got, I got that wrong"? Because I sometimes think that you're only in very early stages of your management career. Mm. If you're Arsene Wenger or Sir Alex Ferguson, you might be far more comfortable at going. Do you know what? I've had 20 years of being a manager. Mm. I got that wrong today. Mm. It feels like um, a braver, maybe more dangerous thing for a really young manager to do mm. because there is that constant battle early on to convince mm. certain people that you're okay to be yeah. a manager. I, I haven't done it in that way, but I, what I have done with individuals is, for instance, I know this year I've, I've not played players and I've sort of wrestled with a, the selection problem, decided not to play a player who's not gone so well. And I've said to the player, that was a mistake. I, I made yeah. a mistake not playing you there. And, and little things like that. For I bet that's quite powerful, actually. I, I, well, I, I like to think so, because I kind of think, what would I want to hear as a, as a player? And I think that to have... An, a, a good friend of mine recently told me, you know, we were talking about communication, um, and it was saying, if you don't communicate, and it's probably, I'd never heard this before, but it was about how negativity will, or the wrong understanding will just con contaminate that space of not communicating. So if I drop that player, don't say a word, feel like it went wrong myself, don't mention that to mm. him, and pick him or don't pick him next week. I've got no idea of control about how we're going to take that. Where at least if I can go and say, okay, yeah, you know what? I made a mistake there. I feel that and I, I feel you'll get something back there. Whether you get a blank face, an angry face or whatever, those difficult conversations, fortunately, are part of the, for the course for me in, in the job I do. I but if that. I don't and take the easy out, which I have taken at times. Mm. Last year at Derby, when I first got in, it was like, oh, these difficult conversations, I'm going to put that one off. Uh, and maybe sometimes you still do, but generally you've got to try and hit them as much as you can. So what would you say has been 
the single biggest thing that you've that you've learned in the couple of years that you've been a head coach now then Frank? Um, there were were so many things tactically so I won't kind of touch on that because I think there there is a big part of that but probably that one of personal relationships with the the players and and the group relationship that you have with them trying to strike that right balance because for me a high performing group or our team say it has to be a balance between being really positive but being slightly on edge so it's like, how positive can I be? I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, just trying to be a cheerleader here and not, not see that we've lost two games on the bounce or something. You know, I can't just keep being positive. And when we're winning and it's great, how can I keep them on edge to so they don't think, yeah, we're going to win every game? Because I've yeah. seen that one before many times and then you lose the next. So I think I try to, um, to create that kind of balance. And, and, I, and I'm still striving for that. I still think a lot about that and go over it myself and go, have, have I been positive? Have I spoken to that player enough? Did he get what I felt there? You know, and how can I help? each individual and I, and I think you do have to keep analysing that one because it's always different but I think that's the thing I've learned that you can't neglect that side of it and think I'm just going to be the master coach because I'm not I'm not the master coach and I'm not the great psychologist but I'll do my best to do what I can see in front of me and yeah. hopefully we'll get success we get gone we, well it sounds very much like we go back to that yin and yang of the way you were parented mm. the hard message as well as the nurturing support and encouragement mm. yeah but which leads us to there's a really interesting area that i want to explore with you this idea of um family and how important family bonds are to you so mm. when you speak about the west ham experience it mm. sounds that a large part of your emotion came from the fact that you felt betrayed mm. you'd grown up in the in east end mm. family it was seen as a family club and yeah mm. they rejected you mm. so how do you think it's possible to create a, a family atmosphere at a club where you have those bonds, where you can be hard at times, but you still have that relationship where people know that you've got their best interests at heart? Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm striving for. I mean, I, I agree. The fact you, You're right, and the family thing with... My, my nan lived around the corner from West Ham, and I felt like, well, I was a crazy young West Ham fan, and then when it went the other way on me, I, I kind of questioned... Not the club, I question people. But you know, but then as you get older, you realise that you'll end up questioning people all your life, no matter what you do, because you know, everyone's different and different circumstances. So I think probably to, to answer the question about now is that just tackle what you've got in front of you and try and you try and be there for your players, you try and be open with the players, you try and create a togetherness between them as a group, and that's hard. That's hard because we play at the top of elite sport. I've got twenty five players say whatever our squad is at any time and I can pick 11 and the other ones generally probably don't like you on a Saturday afternoon or whenever it is so it's not as cut and dried as saying it's, it's the easy it's the easy one after a, a win and I'll come out and speak afterwards or, or the players and go yeah you've got great team spirit here and then when you lose you kind of go well, you know all of a sudden you have to go what well, there's a team spirit not so good this week because you lost yeah. so it's not like a simple one to say we've got a, we've created a great family atmosphere that can only come at the right end when you probably won it or, or feel like you've achieved such great success and then people put it together. The building blocks for that are huge because it's a really easy thing to say. Um, but to have um, the family feel in a really um, competitive, high-performance uh, sport is tough and takes a lot of work. And it doesn't look like the, the, the ideal family. It doesn't look like sure. that. You know? But what would you say are the building blocks of doing that then? Well, communication for sure. Um, making the message clear to the players of what you want from them on the training pitch, having um, an idea with the players that I want you to, I want us to be a group of good people as well as good players and a good team. I think you have to have respect amongst each other, and um, uh, and you definitely at the top of the club set that tone. Like that is definitely on me. I'm 100 percent responsible for that one, um, and you try and promote that regularly in how you train, how you act. And um, if you see things that you don't like within the group, you have to act upon them to try and make sure that you, you, you're going. I, I don't want a beautiful family. I want players that can rely on each other when they go out on the pitch that are going to be tough and back each other up at the right moments. And that, as I say, that doesn't look like the beautiful family. And that's life. You know, there are you know, lots of things in my family, without going into detail, that are not perfection. That's life. But you just try and do your best. And how do you get the balance between 
having a close relationship with a player so that when the time is right, you can put your arm around them and tell them that you're there for them. Mm-hmm. And at other times, making it clear that they are the players, you are the manager, and there is a big distinction there. I wonder whether that's something that, that you've wrestled with, in your, particularly in your first year at Chelsea and probably at Derby as well. Yeah, no, I, I do wrestle with it a lot. Um, I think you can do it. I, I think when, when the, the idea of being straight with a player always helps. And mm. um, honesty is a difficult one because sometimes it's really hard to be honest because you can say things that could really that hurt the player if you wanted to be you know, absolutely honest. But I think you can be straight and be very... Um, and be caring in how you speak to the players, I think they'll accept the good and the bad. They might not at that moment. They might walk off not liking you. Um, they might go and tell someone else, I don't really like him so much or whatever. But I do think, because I had managers that I worked for that at the time I probably, I didn't, I didn't like, I didn't have the best relationships with in my reactive way. Back in the day, I would have gone, don't like him because he didn't pick me so much. Now I'm older, I get it. I mm. get the problems that they had trying to deal with me. So I, I try and sometimes, when you speak to the players, don't just try and be the cutting manager that's making the decision. Give them maybe something, um, not a story, because they definitely don't want to hear my stories all day, but give them an experience maybe, or talk about uh, a bigger picture. Maybe try and come from it from a different angle, because I do think players sometimes respond when you actually... You know, I spoke to a player recently who was having a tough time playing, and I referred to tough times I had planned, and I was understanding of the fact, because I had many a tough time. I took my foot off the pedal sometimes, just played bad in certain games, took criticism at times, and as I say, it always comes. So I think to try and speak to the players in a, in a pretty grown-up way and, and explain that this is it means that you can sell both sides, the good and the bad moments to mm. them. Uh, and you spoke earlier about the way to communicate with people. Mm. And, and I, I'm, a, I'm in complete agreement with that because I think if you are doing your best and it comes from the heart and you're doing it for the right reasons, you can never cause an issue by communicating. And it's one of my frustrations, you know, my, my other job as a football presenter, you know, I always want to speak to managers and particularly directors of football, people who set the agenda at a club, people who decide on the culture of a football club. Because when things go wrong, they don't talk. So people just jump to conclusions and assume that they either don't care or they don't know what they're doing. And if they were able to come out and talk more openly and explain why a certain move or a certain player or a certain situation hasn't worked out positively, I think it would help them because mm. people would realise, oh, they do care. They Like everyone, things just go wrong sometimes in mm. life. And I think as long as as a manager you've got the best intentions, mm. it's never the wrong thing to share how you truly feel with your players. And I wonder if that's something that's changed. You know, when you were growing up, managers were quite autonomous a lot of the time, weren't they, mm. in those days? And they'd, yeah. this is my way or the highway. And I think now managers like you and... Jurgen Klopp and Maurizio Pochettino. It's about taking those players with you on the journey, mm. isn't it? Yeah, I, I was interested when I listened to you speak with Pochettino, actually, because I think he mentioned, I'm pretty sure it was on your podcast, but he mentioned about um, coming in with non-negotiables as a manager That's right, and yeah. then realising that he couldn't quite stick to those non-negotiables. And I, I absolutely got that because when you come into management and you can have a really firm idea, I will not accept somebody being late. I will not accept it if they don't. I will not accept yeah. that kind of performance. And then when you come and you go, oh, he's been late, but you need him at the weekend, do you have to say it? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, there were, and as a manager, you get probably about, I don't know how many, but loads of them every day. And if you come in with an iron fist and you want to say, this is how I am, almost to promote myself, I'm a young manager, but don't worry, I'm really tough. I think you're going to get players that go to, come on. Like, so, and that's not to say I don't have... But you still need non-negotiables, though. There yes, have to do. be certain... What, what yeah. are your certain things that simply are not acceptable? Work ethic on the training pitch. Yeah. Is that, absolutely, to, to have work ethic. To not respect your teammate, I suppose, if um, you know, you're out of the team and you don't support the group, that's absolutely... Like, to, and I understand a sad face on the bench in terms of an angry face that want to play, but to not be part of the group then, that's almost... Uh, the start of the end if that develops so you can't accept that um, and we have as I say we have like a lot of rules there's a big thing made when we did our fine system at Chelsea because it was quite chunky the, the numbers were big you know and, and I kind of wanted to because I felt I'd been told about how things had been the year before and I don't like people being late and all those things but I'm also human and I get it and there are loads of things around that that have to um, you have to be leaning on you have to move on slightly because this is life we can't have, it can't be one certain way we all see things differently mm-hmm. as we go through it and um, I think what you try to do is lay down those rules because you want to give the players a guideline of where you want to go to 
And I think once they start to respect that and you feel that, I think you can then move on to the next stage where you kind of go, okay, don't forget them lads, but they're there. But what's the next thing? How can we get better on the pitch? Which is obviously clearly the most important thing. And finding people for being one minute late is not necessarily going to make you better on the pitch. So that's kind of, I think those pieces are pretty movable at times. So you played for a lot of different coaches over your career. And you know that phrase that for people outside of football Mm. is often used of when a coach loses a dressing room. Mm. What do you understand by that then? Yeah, I mean, I think I've seen it many a time and I think the communication one is a big deal. Like we keep coming back to it and it's interesting the more you talk about it because if a player or a group of players don't feel like they have something back from you, for good or for bad, I think you start to lose. That, that space gets filled with the negativity that we talk about. Um, I think sometimes there's a blame thing in football where maybe it's at times, and I've been involved in this again, where the group of players, for some reason, feel like the manager is the one that's letting them down, and then you start to feel that relationship break down that way. And some of it, I think, is an unfortunate, and it's, it's quite a cutting phrase, isn't it? It sounds terrible. Yeah. If I was a manager that you have that, you read that, you'd be like, oh my God, that's really what I don't want, that's horrible. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's as simple as that always. I just think sometimes the, uh, the balance between players and management or whatever can, can break down somewhere along the line. So I think you, don't, you can't walk in fear of that. I think you have to work as well as you can um, try and communicate, try and make the message clear. Because I think if you don't have a clear message on and off the pitch, it's an easy excuse for players to go, well, I didn't quite understand that. So you can never assume that players expect that I come in, that I want to play a different way, and that means switching the ball from one side of the pitch to the other rather than short passes. I have to hammer that daily and train that way daily. And then at the end, you know what, if I lose a dressing room when I've tried to do everything I can, or lose a dressing room as that headline might say, I think you can probably walk away pretty comfortable right. with it. But I think if you lose a dressing room where you haven't addressed loads of issues with players, you've made it a bit negative, you're not the positive face every morning and you come in and you're upset because they're not doing what you think that they should do. I think then as a manager, you'd have to take that as, as a slant on yourself and maybe accept you're going to lose people if you're not going to work in that way. Okay. And have you become comfortable with the fact that football's a bit of a crazy world and we've already touched on 100% responsibility in this podcast, but you can take 100% responsibility, you can do your very best job, but your success or your failure is still dependent upon the performances yeah. of other people. Have you become comfortable with, with that fact? Or is it still one that you yes wrestle no. with a little bit? <laughs> it's, it's one of the reasons I think management, there's a lot of reasons, is much more stressful than playing. One of them is because as a player, you, sit, you have much more responsibility yourself and that's it kind of thing. As long as you prepare right and play as well as you can, of course you want to be a team player. As a manager, your responsibility starts on Monday finishes at the end of the game on Saturday and then it just restarts for the next game all the time, consistently. So, and you know that whatever you're doing, I've had games this year where I feel like I prepared as well as I possibly could. That's great. I mean, I know what we're playing against. The patterns went right, the shape of the team's good, my selection feels right, bang, you lose. I have ones where it didn't feel good in the week, then you win. And I know that's life generally a little bit, but there is a lot of businesses out there that you can actually kind of you know, have markers towards getting to where you want to get to if you feel like you do the right things and then probably at the end of the year you can kind of go, yeah, we, we succeeded because look, look where our stock's gone up or look where that's ended up. Football doesn't work that way. So it's, it's very important you reflect at the end of a season saying, look about how well you thought you did. But you have to understand that there's that crazy element that you talk about. Um, you, can't, you can't rely on it. It can't be an excuse because if I keep saying, like I mentioned earlier, if I want to blame the players, then I might as well forget about it because I have to take the, the responsibility completely. But it's why football's stressful on the line because some days you feel like you've done everything right and it's not happening on match day. And that's one of the unfortunate parts of the job, I suppose. It's also a recruitment business because every business in the world is a recruitment business, whether mm. you're running a shop, running a factory mm. or running a football club. So yeah. as long as you get recruitment right you should be okay. I'm not talking about getting the best players, I'm talking about getting the right players. Yeah. How do you judge what is a right player for you at Chelsea? What are the things that you look for before you decide, yep, he's the man for me? Well, you have to look at it in the context of the squad that you have. And I had a long year to look at it as I got to Chelsea because we, we couldn't bring anyone in. So the, you know, we had some loans that come back, but they'd been, they were normally pretty young and they'd come from the championship. So um, I had a long, I've had a long look at it this year. Uh, in football terms it has to be joined up you need to have the club and yourself and the scouts and people around you hopefully pointing in the same direction we haven't even touched on the challenge of managing up yeah. to a board or a chief exec or anything yeah so and you and you have to do it you know it's one of the almost step one on the coaching badges managing up is a huge thing that they talk about uh, and every i think every 
manager in the Premier League or in football will have different experiences of that managing up. And so they, they all look different. Um, but I think... Um, where, where was I before? Players, that? what do you need? Yeah. What do you look for? From look, a, what do I look for? Okay, so you have to look at the balance of the squad and think, well, where do we need to improve? That, that's, that's clearly a, a huge thing. Um, and then um, you go through the process of, of looking around and what kind of profile you're looking at, depending on what position it may be. What do I want my team to be? Do I want them to be physically great? Do I want them to be really technically great somewhere in the middle? And you're obviously going to then recruit players along the basis of those lines. That's what your job is as a manager. That's why most managers will come in and go, can I make two or three signings along my, with my vision? Because it will help affect this team, you know, because they're the type of players I want to bring in. And I didn't have that in year one at Chelsea. Now, hopefully, we'll see in year two that I can bring that to the team to, to help it. So when I can stand up and talk about my team, I can say, yeah, it, it is quick and pacey and lots of energy. Because look, we work hard on the training pitch. is always rule number one. But the players we're bringing in are taking us in that direction and they're improving us so I think that process of recruitment is is really really tough but I think it's it's pretty simple when you want to break it down like that they have to improve you they have to go along with the idea of where you want to go with the team mm. and then they have to be good people and good influences how do you judge that though you do as much as you can you do as much as you can in terms of um, looking at the, the, the you know it's, this is not brand new from me today, but the scouting yeah. systems are yeah. not just looking at players now, they're actually looking at their life, their social media. And when you say everything. a good person, what, how would you define that? I want, I want them to be players that want to come and improve and feel like they play for Chelsea, feel like they want to help us and be successful and be part of a team. So they'll, come, they'll, they'll obviously come with a selfish demeanour. I don't want the perfect teammate. That sounds too corny. Yeah. They have to be a good teammate, of course. But they, they want to come and actually be, be good for themselves, whatever their motive might be. They might want to play for, for Real Madrid in four years' time. That's just life. But when they come to Chelsea, I want them to come and be straight into the team and want to work and be hungry and come in and I want to win and not cause problems and not be, not be badly selfish. Like It's all about me. I want someone who wants to do well because they want to be part of a winning team. That's it. it sounds easy. It's really easy to say because you never know until you actually get them through the door. But you can learn quite a lot by a phone call, a face-to-face -face meeting, a talk with someone that's worked with them before. You can do as You have to do as much as you can. I think you're in a really interesting stage of your career uh, coming into Chelsea, Frank, because you, you see a pattern emerging through a lot of sort of coaching careers that you get to the like the initial excitement stage where you, you know where you come in and then mm. people start doing something differently, mm. and then you hit that messy middle stage, which mm. is where in football coaching that's where most coaches get the sack and they bring somebody <laughs> in to go back to the start, mm. and yet sustained success requires you to get through that messy middle to mm. then start to make to make progress to where to where you are mm. so looking at your career now you, you're about to enter the messy middle stage mm. of that of that second season yeah so what problems do you anticipate are likely to come your way um i, I think we, I, yeah, I, I agree with you and i think you have to be understanding that you're coming to the messy patch because you have to accept that. And I think our messy patch probably happened actually back end of the season. I think we achieved a lot this season because nobody expects us to come in the top four. But we lost a cup final and then we lost to Bayern Munich and it's a bit of taste for, for me. I go away and I have a bad feeling about those games. So I understand that those issues and problems will come again next year. I just, I and, and we as staff have to double down. We have to work harder. We have to analyse why we conceded 50 goals this year and not just me say, yeah, it's because of him and he could have done better and he could have done better. What could I have done to do better? So the messy patch is always going to come. And yep. even if you're Liverpool now, who this year were absolutely incredible, I'm sure Jurgen Klopp's not had his feet up for the last three weeks going, OK, oh, great players we've got, we're just going to kill it again next year. It will be where's next. So my version of that has to be, how can I keep going and improving and be ready for the messy patch. But at a club like Chelsea, where there is a big turnover of coaches that you've experienced through mm. your time, how do you manage upwards to make sure that you get that patience to know that, you know, that like all the, like, the, so the pattern is going to be turbulent at some stage, but how do, they, how do you ensure that you get the patience to keep faith with you to know, get through that's it? Not easy. That's, not, that's not an easy answer. Now, I think you can just do your job as well as you can. We come back to communicating again. I certainly think communicating upwards is a good thing because when your tough times come, and it's easy to obviously send an email, make a phone call after a great win because it's the easiest call ever. But after a loss, if you then go quiet and you're not really explaining, and I, I understand that. If I was an owner of a club and I'm watching and I go, well, okay, so this. Let's, feel, let's see what his reaction is going to be, what's the team next week and all these things. I think if you can communicate, I think it certainly helps that relationship. Whether it buys you time or not, I don't know. Um, but I, I can't get too far ahead of myself. I can't talk about 
two or three year plans too much. I may say it to the media sometimes because I think it's sure. a good thing to kind of lay, lay out there. But at the same time, I'm very aware at a club like Chelsea that even though we had a transfer ban, even though the, the year was difficult, expectations are going to go up hugely next year. And I just have to accept that as part of the job and try and go about my job as well as I can. And, and if I am having relationships which mean managing up or managing around me, I have to be as good as I can with those because they're all important because the tough time will come and I'll rely on those, all those little ones. And that might not just be managing up, that might be managing the kit man or you know, a member of staff around you because I've seen how the, the dominoes can fall very quickly. And, and I think if you isolate yourself as a manager or you don't want to open yourself up to, to all those relationships along the way, I think they, they, they fall much quicker. Yeah, it comes back to understanding, doesn't it? And it's a hard one because as the manager, you're kind of the scratching post at that football club for everyone with an issue from, mm. you know, someone like the kit man right up to Roman Abramovich at the mm. top. But, you know, particularly when it comes to managing up and lots of business people listen to this podcast to, mm. to get decent takeaways for their own business life and a lot of them will manage up as well. Mm. You need to understand, don't you, what Marina is going through, what Roman is going through, not just from a Chelsea perspective, mm. but from their personal lives and their, their own challenges that they have on a daily basis as well. And that what Frank Lampard wants is not the be-all and end-all of, of Chelsea Football Club always. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the biggest things I, I, I noticed about going from Derby, which is a big club, a championship club, and going to Chelsea, which is a Champions League club. It's bigger, the network is huge. You know, where the, the training ground is huge. I walk from my office down to the canteen, there's four or five, six offices with people doing different work, more numbers, more people. And it's, it's when, what, when I realised that Derby actually was pretty easy for relationships because there weren't so many people. And then when you walk into Chelsea, I think I can walk in with an idea. And, okay, I think this is how, in my opinion, how medical should work, how loan department should work, how recruitment should work and all these things. And if I walk in and think I can actually make everyone think the same as I think, I don't think I'm going to do that in two seconds. And I think that's coming back to that sort of non-negotiable thing. I have to go in, and even if I don't quite agree or don't quite like it, I have to work with people. I don't have to like them, they don't have to like me that much, but they have to respect me in the workplace. So I noticed that Chelsea was, was huge. And on a bad day, it's easy to go in and kind of ignore some of those offices because we've lost. And kind of, you know, you, you have to open up all those conversations. So it's not just managing up, it's understanding how the analyst feels, maybe. We've got a great analysis team and that. How they feel if we have a loss and they might feel a little bit of responsibility. Unless you go and speak to them about that and take on responsibility yourself, then you, you have a little bridge burnt there. And I think those things, I think, will probably, probably, I'm lucky that I've been in football, it's something I love doing, but I'm guessing in lots of industries that will be a similar thing. You cannot go in and think, I know everything, and because I'm, I'm the manager, you will all play to my tune. No, no, I'm very open to, to understanding, trying to understand whatever. It doesn't mean I have to agree, but I'll try and understand. I, I've learned that a lot this year, yeah. to be honest, Jake, from the difference of being at Derby. Who coaches you, Frank? Um, I think, well, the, the, my staff, definitely, in terms of I'm very open with, with the staff that I have and I like to throw things out there. I don't like to come in. Some days I'll come in and say, well, I thought about it last night, this is how I wanted to train today, but we'll ask for their ideas and their opinions and so sometimes you get things back that help you become a better coach, you could clearly because you trust in them. Um, I always try and uh, listen. I don't go searching for conversations. I, you know, I, one, I always get asked this, do, do you speak to Jose Marina? Do you speak to Harry Redknapp? Do you speak to... Like, I have those conversations, if I have respectfully, but I don't go searching for that. I feel like I, I'm taking responsibility by just trying to learn day by day. So if I can become a better coach, I think it's up, it's up to me. It's up to me to be mm -hmm. open and take in things. What about at home with, with your wife, Christine? Because... She's not worked in football. Oh, she definitely coaches me. She's not, well, there you go. Because I don't think you have to just come from a football background yeah. to be able to give advice because your entire life, as soon as you arrive at Cobham or at Stamford Bridge, is only about personal relationships. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what walk of life you're from if you know how to deal with those, and I'm sure she does. Yeah, I'm very fortunate on that one, Jake. And, you know, I might give you a great headline out of this podcast if one of the papers nick this, but because I do throw a lot of things off Christine and yeah. it's like, she's not like picking what fullback we're going to play at the weekend but at the same time if I have certain issues which are lifey issues or and actually football issues sometimes I, I can I can definitely go home I'm fortunate to have that because I think she's obviously had a she's very work orientated she's had you know a really good career in what she does and I really sort of I obviously love her very much but I really respect her for how she she's got on in her career and works and and how diligent she is like when we're 
at home and she's been working recently doing a TV program, early morning one, and we're sitting and I'm doing my patterns at night. We've got a young baby there and she's doing her notes at night. I think I've said this to you recently, but I've sitting there for two hours. Yeah. And we kind of look at each other and go, did we really expect to be in this position? <laughs> like, is this really, we haven't spoken for a while because we're working away. Yeah. But don't get me wrong, we have lots of downtime. But I, I love the fact that I have somebody there that gets working environments. And, and I, I love to bounce because it's a different view. Yeah. It's a different opinion. I can get bogged down. I spend so much time on Cobham. I almost live in my Chelsea tracksuit sometimes. I have to take it off when I get home because it's like I'm looking at the Chelsea badge. I've been at Cobham all day. I'm in an environment and my staff all the time. It's, it's great sometimes. I go, Christian, what do you think about this problem? Yeah. I've got a player here and you know, he didn't turn up for training yesterday, but you still probably need him at the week. What do you think? And she might go, yeah, but has he got a girlfriend, wife, a problem? Have you spoken to them? Maybe you should speak to them. And I'm like, yeah. You know, like, so mm. she's not my like, life coach as such, but I'm very fortunate to have someone to, to bounce things off at home. And please don't take this the wrong way. Take it in the spirit in which it's intended, right? Okay. You're only a, a football manager, right? Yeah. Whereas she looks at this without all the baggage you carry mm. of football being this huge business in this great world and the, the, the happiness of thousands of people is reliant upon you doing a good job, right? Mm. The fact that she isn't in that yeah. probably makes her a better person to give you advice than going to Jodie Morris, who I know is a brilliant assistant for you, it's, sometimes it's better maybe for Christine, who's not in that world, to give you the advice. De definitely, Jack. It, it, it absolutely simplify. Well, simplify might not be the right word, but it's a different view, like I said. But you're right, I've got great staff. Jodie Morris, Joe Edwards, Chris Jones, who are my, my yeah. close staff. But it's more rounded from her. And Yeah, it's more rounded. And, I, and I, again, I appreciate you can become, not bogged down, but it's the same message. And we sit for hours at work talking, obviously planning and discussing things. But to come on that round, like Christian has a bit of a joke, you know, with me at home when we're watching football constantly all the time and she's like, it's almost fed up and, you know, I'm talking football and the conversation probably comes a bit boring and she, she does reflect on the fact that it's only kicking a ball yeah. and it's only like a game. And she's not criticising on that point. She's almost, going, I think, saying what I think you're trying to get at. She's almost like, you're becoming really, really, you know, intent, intense about this and may, maybe not seeing a bit of clarity in this instance when you really you've got to look at it and it's a game and you're dealing with people. Yeah. And that's kind of the most important thing, really. It's very simple. There's a lot more to it, of course. But come back to that Maybe sometimes. It, it makes you yeah, realise yeah. what it is. See, but that surprises me that you, that, that you described that you can be quite myopic because, again, like, if we go back to your early childhood, you went to a school that was preaching more about being a rounded individual. Mm. You know, again, reading in your books, you say that you take a real interest in politics and, and life outside of football. Mm. Do you feel that football management is sort of making you that way more myopic? Or, yeah. or is it, like it's the nature of the job or, or it's yeah. you that's the... No, I think, I think, well, I think I'm changing anyway, but it's definitely changed me. I mean, simple things like uh, my interest in politics. I, the year I worked in the media, spent a lot of time with Jake and I used to like read certain newspapers, read articles, read different kind of books. I, I don't, I don't, I've just started watching a couple of Netflix recently, but I haven't watched Netflix and I, I like interesting things like that. I can watch, give me, yep. and, I, and I came away from that a lot and I, and I just watch football and I sit and do patterns and plan training and talk football and I think you have, for, for your own health actually, mm -hmm. and for uh, sometimes a bit of um, balance certainly in your life, lockdown actually, brought that back to me a little bit. It was really nice to not go game, 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 game for a period and reflect and think and talk about different things. So I think you'd be you're careful. That. You do have to be obsessive. You do have to work pretty much every bloody hour you can to do try. Do you? Yeah, you do. You do, because I think otherwise everybody would be like Pep Guardiola. Like, it's not like that. He's the best and Jurgen Klopp are the best. Pochettino have great success because of the input from them, them themselves. I can't sit here and say what is high performance and say, well, hard work, and then come away from that. It has to be there in a huge sense, but I'm just talking about more balance there. But I'd say, like, when you read about someone like Guardiola, that one of his best friends is a, is a poet and a mm. playwright, you know, mm. like, he's got... He does seem to have a rounded friendship group that it isn't just all about football with him, and I'm, I'm just interested that... Yeah. You know, like, again, reading that you say you've got... Friends that work in the city, friends that, have, yeah. that do a variety of jobs. Yeah, they're not poets. <laughs> no, <laughs> they can, no, they can drink about ten pints in an evening. <laughs> yeah. usually, but, yeah. not, not. but I'm surprised yeah. that I'm, I'm surprised that you think you have to be an obsessive about it. But, but, but I think you can, to be I think successful, you can, I think you can be both. I think you can be both. I, I read I've read a few books on Pep Guardiola and his time in uh, at Bayern Munich and. 
he became obsessive about the system. He was struggling in the beginning to get it, and there was you know stories of him sitting up through the night, through the night, and all these things. And I, this was pre-management for me when I read this, and I was like, wow, that's like that's intense, and I understand why this fella is as good as he is, because without that detail, you can't get to where you want to be. Not in the modern day. I mean the. The, the, the old days of um, saying, you know what, the, the great Liverpool team of the 80s, and I hear pundits say this sometimes, oh, it's great, we should have five or size every day, we used to move the ball so quick, we were a great team. That cannot be done anymore. It cannot be done on that level. You need to be absolutely on point in terms of detail because otherwise someone else will be. And the adage of you can't blame your players will be a very true one. Yes, of course you need good players. Absolutely you need good players. But if you don't have that detail, and everyone will have their, probably their ways of, you know, my friend's a poet, you know, he, I read about Pep Guardiola um, speaking with people who play chess and loving people yeah, play, for that Kasparov, kind of different yeah. angle. And those sort of things I really respect. So I do search for those kind of things. But when it comes back down to it, I do feel it's the input of how much you want to work around your team to be better that is going to define you in management. Well, do, does burnout concern you then? Um, yes, I think I can, I can see it. I can see it. I, I read Jurgen Klopp the other day talking about he may take time off. and he, he, Luckily enough, he can probably absolutely choose when that is, rightly so. And he may enjoy that and may not come back. And I get that thought process. So I get burnout from the, the idea of the manager. I get it maybe from the idea of the message from the players up to the manager. You hear about great ma managers in teams that have had like a three or four year cycle. I understand that from both sides. And I think this job we're in is so intense and there's so much expectation and pressure that I think you burn out can be. And I think you need to take every moment you can to recharge within the year. And I understand managers that want to take time away from it. Why do it then? Um, because I, I do love it. Um, and when I had my year off, it was the most beautiful thing to do because I was, I was very intense as a player on myself for a long time and I needed to break away from that. But then I had a burning desire to get back in mm. and I had a burning desire to, to try and be... I have a burning desire to try and be the best I can be at what I do. And I'm lucky, I do love football and I want to be the best I can be in it. So if you took it away from me tomorrow, and that's always possible in this game, I'd miss it, I know that for sure. I love doing it. I just want to finish by taking it back to your mum and the quote that we, we both read in the book where you said a great bit of advice from her was just be kinder to yourself. Mm. How are you getting on with that? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it because um, I try to... I mean, when... when I, you mentioned Christine. I've got a fantastic supportive wife. I've got three daughters, you know... Um, one relatively young and my elder two. We've all just been away for a few days in, in the break that we've had. Um, and those are moments that are just brilliant for me and actually come away from. So I try and be, you know, be, be kind to yourself. Maybe it sounds a bit like a false kind of motto now, but I do have to have time. But when you've got good people around you and you look at your daughters and, and my wife, and then those are the moments that I can be. And I'm in work mode a lot. I'm in work mode a lot. I can't change that. Um, so when I can snap out of it, Christine snaps me out of it sometimes with our own personal moments, I try and enjoy them. And, uh, and I do enjoy them, so I try, I do enjoy them. That's uh, why it's important, I think, to have people around you that nourish you away from the world that you're in. And you have to be quite ruthless, I think, sometimes. Rio Ferdinand yeah. spoke about this, and Robin Van Persie, about mm. cutting away the, the drains and only leaving the fountains. It's, yeah, it's I mean, I've, I have a lot with that, Jake. I mean, I... You know, my, my phone and my messages, and sometimes you get a lot of people messaging and different things, and it's not all negative, it's not, of course it's not. Like, I've got friends that I don't see as much as I used to and all that thing, and that's not, like, the cut loose. I heard Robin Van Persie and was talking, and there were specific reasons I think he moved away, which helped his career. I, I generally don't have the time uh, the way I work at the moment now, and I feel bad sometimes, and I'll try and find the time where you have to put things on hold. You have to put a lot of things on hold, but the inner circle and the tight people around you yeah, you have to rely on really good people because this job is extreme in terms of football and it takes a lot out of you. And um, I'm very lucky that I can have the wife that tells me to snap out of it in a good way and we go on and have a date night and a dinner or we do something different. Those, those things are great. And then I have to not talk about football for two or three hours. And um, that's it. That's the balance you try and strike. We're going to move on to our quickfire questions mm. in just a second. But before we get to those, just a final one about your, your daughter, Patricia, who's mm. how old? Two years old? Two, nearly two. Nearly two. Mm. Of all the things you've learned and all the journey you've been on, how do you employ that now, having this beautiful little almost two-year-old and mm. you're such an important part of her life? How do you take those lessons you've learned to give her as much as you can? Um, I just... I, I, I give her as much as I can. 
I, I don't know how to, to sort of throw that one on me, but I, I try and be the, the, the dad, and as I, I did with my two elder daughters as well, and obviously still try to do as they get older, this, obviously the relationship changes. But with Patricia, lockdown came, uh, obviously a difficult time for everybody in the world. But for me, in terms of home life and being able to devote more time to her, it was the big plus of a tough time for everybody, for me at home, because I could give her more time. And I do, we talk about the relationship with my mum and dad. I want to be a parent more like my mum. I'll say that truthfully because she, I am more aligned to that of trying to, to have calm words, be a smiley, positive face and all those things as she grows up. And I, and I try and do that. You know, I'm always um, dad that seems to go away to work quite a lot and probably come back in her very young years. But that, sometimes you get that big bubbly smile and excitement because you are the one that doesn't do all the, the nitty gritty jobs that Christine has to do. And I just come back and make her laugh <laughs> and be funny. It's just a, a, a great position sometimes. But that's all I want to do. And, and bring her up with good manners. You know, I want her to be a, a polite young girl as I try to do with my older daughters because that's what would make me proud. I don't care. I do care that they get their great grades when they get to the GCSEs and A-level time. But if they're good people, then that's, that's all I really want from them. Brilliant. I thought there was a really nice um, comment you made um, in that game at Anfield earlier this year where you you were caught making some comments to, uh, <laughs> yeah. to Jurgen yeah. Klopp. Yeah. And I really liked the fact that when you were interviewed, you said your main concern was that your elder daughters would see mm. you using bad language and that was the bit that you regretted, not mm. necessarily. Yeah, what, no, I, I did regret that. And when that broke the next day, I, I clearly felt it as I was doing it but when it broke the next day and a friend of mine sent it to me in the morning I was a bit embarrassed by it because I was in the moment but in the moment I was I felt we turned up and it was the easiest day for Liverpool ever they won the league they went goals up early in the game and few things happened with the bench I'm not going to go into the detail but my feeling was I want to protect my club, my players, I don't want them. To, I, I've been, and I, I didn't have the problem with Liverpool celebrating at all. I, I've been, luckily enough, I've been there. I've been with Chelsea, won, won the league quite early one year and you can sit there and everything feels great. My feeling was I want to be there where they are, you know, out of respect and I probably jumped the gun. I definitely didn't mean any disrespect to Jurgen Klopp because I've got huge admiration for him but what I felt had gone on, it was an impulse reaction which I would happily, uh, when I do see him, I'll, I'll put that one right. Um, but also I care about my job and it came out in the wrong way and even I explained that to my daughters when I, when I got home and I'll be brutally honest it's not the first time they've heard it from me <laughs> in, in the wrong moment so you know I do try and um, practice what I preach but I suppose in adult life it doesn't always work that way but yeah I, I was this way and not just my own daughters because you've got you know millions of Chelsea fans sure. around the world whether you're young or old it's not the way I like to carry myself but in talking about high level sport you can't take passion out of the game and um it just came out of me in one little soap there. <laughs> right, here we go then. Quick fire questions. The three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you have to buy into. Um, I feel like I'm going over myself again here, but hard work. Yeah. Um, wow. Trying to come maybe, to the right. Knowing you, maybe hard work three times over. It kind of feels like that. Yeah. It kind of feels like that. Well, but, you know, we've I, spoken about hard work a lot in this podcast. Yeah. Hard work and responsibility are the sort of two yeah, things. Yeah, I mean, I responsibility is a, is a good one to take responsibility. Like I mentioned there about the, the blame game and the idea that's a very easy one to, to get into in any form of life, I think. So to, you know, to, to work hard, to take responsibility for yourself, um, be a nice person, I suppose. That is almost every time the third one, isn't it? The people go with the hard work and the relentlessness and then they're like, actually, you also, you've got to I do it you can right. do both. you can do both. You yeah, can do yeah. both. What do advice both. would you give a teenage Frank just starting out? Oh, I uh, can't say work hard, can I? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think... Um, I, I think to sort of... You know, this is not cut, cut an answer for you, but I think to be... Um, to, to stay calm through through tough times and and be and see the big big picture because it's very easy to to react to in, in, in good and bad in different ways. Um, you know, I'm, I feel very fortunate to have the career I had and now be manager of Chelsea Football Club. But within that, there's loads of things that go on. So I would sort of almost say to him, be be prepared, young man. Do you know what I mean? Be prepared for good and for bad, and um, and just you know. We, keep going back to it but work as hard as you can and when you come away from that be a good person in fact before hard work be a good person and then when you work work as hard as you can and um, 
dealing with the good and the bad leads us on to this one. How did you react to your greatest failure? Um, well, which one of my failures do you want to choose? Whichever one you think is the greatest, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we got knocked out of World Cups 2006. I had something like 30 shots and didn't score and got absolutely crucified for it. Um, how did I react to that? I probably consumed a fair, fair bit of alcohol on the evening of the game that we got knocked out in, uh, as you tend to do. Um, and probably, I'll, I'll make myself sound like the best sportsman ever if I went, I went away and worked hard and got better again, because it's never that simple. Of course, sometimes you take it on the chin for a while. And um, so, but I think I probably, hopefully you learn as you get older with the failures, because I had a, had a lot of failures is that the older you get, you kind of understand what they are, keep your head down. When you, haven't, when you fail, the last thing you should do is open your mouth and start shouting about what went wrong and what might have and who else maybe was involved in that. It's to stay quiet and then just perform, just come back and perform at a later date. And I think I, I hopefully did that most times that I've failed. Are you happy? Yes, yes. I'm very happy in uh, my home life, which is the most important thing, of course. Uh, and I'm happy in the job that I'm in, and, and I love doing it. And of course, there are lots of tough times along the way, and sometimes you're portraying happiness when maybe you're thinking about training tomorrow, how good we can be this season. I'm always doing that, but I'm very happy doing what I'm doing. How important is legacy to you? Um, oh, that's a good one. Uh, not, not that important, and I'll, I'll give an example of that quickly, is that... If I was worried about my legacy at Chelsea, I wouldn't have taken a manager's job. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that it's there, but you can't be, that can't be your goal. Maybe when I'm a really, really old man, hopefully, if I live long enough and you sit back at the end of it, you can go, yeah, legacy of that period or that period or that period. At the minute, I don't think about it. I think legacy is something to think about or to, for other people to talk about with you. So I'm not that concerned about it. And if you could give one golden rule for a high-performance life, Frank, what would that be? Um, I think you probably know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, work again, no. surely. Um, no, but I mean, listen, it, it, high-performance life, career, team, whatever, it looks different for everybody, so it's really hard to give advice. You know, Sir Alex Ferguson had an incredibly high-performing team and career for a long, long time. So do other managers now. They all, they all look different, and, and I appreciate that. So I wouldn't try and give that. I've, I spoke a lot there about working hard and having the right ethics, but it looks different for everybody. So I suppose... Do it, do it as you feel it, as, you, as what you see in front of you, with, with absolute demands on yourself to try and be as good as you can be. Because the desire to improve daily is a huge thing that maybe I haven't quite picked up on enough there. But you, every day you wake up, it's what can I do better and, and never settle. Well, that's probably the, one of the, the main things. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank for you. Cheers. Agreeing to be part of the nah, High Performance Podcast. Absolutely.